Welcome to Making Waves. Welcome to Making Waves. Fresh ideas and freshwater science. Fresh ideas and freshwater science and, and why, why they, they matter, matter to, you. to you. Making Waves. Making Waves is brought to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support from, from the Society for, for Freshwater, freshwater science. science. Welcome to Making Waves. I'm your co-host Aaron Larson and you're listening to part 4, the final episode of a four-episode mini-series on education and freshwater science. In each episode, freshwater scientists will talk about an activity they've used in their class, ranging from activities that take just a few minutes to entire modules of the course. We hope these will help everyone, from high school teachers through college instructors, get new ideas to use in their classes. If you haven't listened to parts one through three yet, we suggest that you go take a listen. In this episode, I'll be talking with Michael Bogan, an assistant professor at University of Arizona, about an activity he uses to introduce his students to stream orders and active learning on the first day of class. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Um, so to start with, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the activity that you'll be talking to us today, and if you could briefly describe it for our listeners. Yeah, so the activity that I'll talk about today is, is actually the, just about the first thing that I do in my stream ecology class each semester. So I we don't have a big uh, aquatics program here at University of Arizona, so a lot of our students are, are wildlife-focused or range-focused, um, so they're not necessarily thinking about streams and, and haven't done any any kind of aquatic ecology thinking before the course. So I try to start out fairly big picture and just get a sense of, of how much people know about streams and how they kind of visualize streams. And so for me, the, the easiest way to start with that is is talking about stream orders, talking about the fact that the streams are dendritic networks and therefore different from a lot of uh, terrestrial ecosystems and, and the way we think about how terrestrial animals move through a terrestrial matrix. So basically, we start out the very first day after going over the syllabus. Then I talk real briefly about the water cycle. Most people will have had exposure to that and know roughly where water in the streams comes from. Basically, we, we jump off from that point in that first day of class into talking about stream orders and how we can kind of talk about the size of streams based on where they're at in the, the dendritic stream network. And so I, I just spend a minute or two and, and introduce the concept of, of stream orders and how first order and first order come together and make a second order and so on and so forth. Uh, we talk about what the highest stream order is in the world, and, and I kind of get the students to guess about that. And and then essentially we do a, a, an activity where the students break into smaller groups of three or four students, and I ask them to, first of all, draw a sixth order stream on the board. So I have a lot of whiteboard space, thankfully, in my classroom. Um, this is a class of usually about 25 or 30 students, so it's a, it's a fairly manageable size. So I have them draw a sixth order stream network. And then I actually have a, a set of photographs that I've taken at different places along different stream networks and then ask them to place those photos along that sixth order stream network that they've drawn. So that gets them thinking about, you know, first of all, the geometry of, of stream networks and then also how the look of that stream ecosystem and the amount of interaction with kind of the terrestrial habitat and riparian environment uh, those streams have as you move through that network. Cool. That sounds awesome. So it sounds like the in terms of the class context where you've 
focused on this? Is this a non-majors class or is it like an upper level class? Yeah, so this is an upper level um, and grad split level class, so 400, 500 level class. And we have a, a fisheries emphasis within our degree program here, but very few fisheries for aquatics focused students. So the majority of the students who take the class, it's about 75% undergrad, 25% grad students. And most of them are um, terrestrial ecologists or wildlife biologist focused students who want to learn a little something more about about streams and freshwater systems. It's an a, a optional class. It's not a requirement or anything. And do you guys have a lab component as well, or is it more of a lecture focused? Yeah, that's the, the tricky part about this class for me is that I, just, I inherited it when I started here at, and um, the class had been dormant for a number of years, so it hadn't been taught in about eight years previous to when I started the job here. And so I, I was a little bit limited to the structure of the existing course, which was just a lecture-only course, not a lab component. You know, the, the downside of that, obviously, is, is not getting students out to see streams very often and to see the ecological processes we're talking about. The upside of it is that it's forced me to be a bit more creative about in-class activities and using visuals and videos, kind of brainstorming activities that I probably wouldn't have if we had a separate lecture and lab component. And so that's, I've really been striving through this class to make it more of a visual focused class since we don't have that lab component, but we can actually go out and yeah, that's cool. So it sounds like you're trying to introduce more kind of active learning activities that take the place of the lab portion of a class. And so in terms of preparing for this activity specifically and the class in general, are you sort of going out yourself and collecting um, visual images of streams to use or video or other multimedia? How much, how do you sort of prepare for this type of activity in your class? I, I spent a long time on my pathway to being a professor. And so the good part about that is I've had a lot of field jobs and I've worked in a lot of places and I've been kind of collecting imagery, photos and videos and things like that over time. Somewhere in the back of my head thinking about the fact that, oh, I could use this in teaching someday, you know. And in some of those cases, some of these photographs I'm using, you know, I took 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, so it's fun to, to finally use them in class. I feel like the students respond strongly to that if they know that you have a you as the instructor have a personal connection to some of the images you're showing or some of the case studies you're presenting. That's where the majority of the material comes from. There are cases where, you know, for example, I haven't worked in a lot of large floodplain type rivers and so I'll have to pull information either from, from the internet or from friends and collaborators that will send me videos or images, but I try to use most, most of my own stuff. I think it's really important to have an active learning component for classes that don't have labs. You know, I think active learning is, is useful for any class setting, but, but it's especially important for these science classes where we don't have labs. They're not going to be going out and measuring things and doing it themselves in the field. And I like this activity because we started on day one, right? We go over the syllabus, we talk about you know, for five or 10 minutes about really basic water cycle stuff. And then immediately they're kind of dumped into active learning, right? And getting up, working in groups, kind of problem solving, trying to draw this sixth order stream network, you know, realizing quickly as they're running out of space on the board that a sixth order stream network is a lot larger than they thought it was. <laughs> so it's fun to see that process going on, you know, on the first day of class. And then, then I think the students have more of an expectation of, of how the learning is going to work for a class like this that is lecture-based rather than lab-based. It sounds like for this activity, you're spending sort of the majority of the time in that active learning phase. And then is that sort of standard for 
the rest of your classes as you go forward in the semester? Yeah, I try to vary a bit on how much preparation and lecture introduction the students have before doing an active learning activity. So in this case, it's a relatively simple concept, and so I feel like I can kind of toss them into it and have them figure it out as they go and spend some time. So the introduction is is really brief, and then a lot of the time, you know, probably five minutes of introduction, and then 15 minutes of discovery time for them to kind of figure out the problem. And then there'll be other times, you know, if we're talking about like Leroy Poff's work on filters and how landscape filters and local filters produce the types of stream ecosystems that we see at the at the reach scale, then I'll probably spend 15 or 20 minutes in a bit of an introductory lecture type material. They'll have done a little bit of reading ahead of time, and so we'll do all that preparation and then do 15 or 20 minute active learning activity where you know they're given a, a flow regime graph and they're given a photo of the system and they're supposed to through those two pieces of material interpret what some of those filters might be which species might be excluded which other ones might be present there um, but that obviously takes a bit more background understanding and so i'll front load the preparation material for those activities and then other activities we'll just kind of launch straight into the activity and do the discussion and then making sense of it afterwards. Gotcha. So you sort of mix it up. And it sounds like, if I'm reading this correctly, that the intent of this first um, day of class stream order activity is to also get the students used to being in an active learning classroom, too. Is that part of why you do it, would you say? Or Each semester, there are a number of students, you know, probably in the one-fourth to one-third of the class that have not experienced a lot of active learning and group learning types of activities, and so they can be very resistant to it at first. Um, and so I try to establish basically from the first day of the semester that this is going to be a part of the course. This is how I think is the best way to learn some of this material in the absence of going in the field. And so, yeah, so I want students to, to understand that from day one so that we're not, we're not setting up the expectation that this is going to be a lecture course and you're going to listen to me lecture for 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes and then you're going to take a test every few weeks, right? So the, the activities, the hypothesizing, the group dynamics, that's going to be part of it. And, and, you know, I've, I feel like I've been pretty lucky in that at the teaching evaluations at the end of every semester, those 25 to 30 plus percent of the students that were very skeptical of active learning techniques will admit to being skeptical at the beginning of class. And every single person has said they at least by the end of the class, they at least see the utility of them, even if they didn't necessarily still really like doing them every <laughs> week. <laughs> they saw the importance of, of doing them to learning and, and the vast majority of them you know, by the end of the semester, really liked doing that kind of activity. That's awesome. And I know you've taught now this class a couple of times. And so do you feel like you've changed, especially this introductory stream order activity, a lot based on student feedback? What are some things that students haven't liked as much or have really liked that have caused you to shift kind of how you treat this first day of class? Yeah, I've been lucky. I, I really haven't changed this initial first day of class activity at all. The first semester I taught this class, I was thinking about my own stream ecology class experience as a graduate student and thinking about how I didn't know much about aquatic ecology at that point. And we launched into river continuum concept early in the semester. And I remember thinking how completely overwhelming that was because there are so many moving parts to that, to that one figure in river continuum concept paper. 
And so I thought the first time I was teaching this, okay, how can I get the students to realize that intuitively they already know parts of these complex theories or these complex concepts like the river continuum concept? They know when they're out looking at a stream, whether it's wide or whether it's narrow, they know that in these headwaters, the streams are narrow and there's a lot of canopy cover. And as they move to these larger river systems that they've seen before, that that riparian area kind of moves away to the wayside. And so intuitively, they kind of have an idea of what should be some of the strongest influences on stream ecology, right? But if you just toss a list of all these processes and all these things at them, it can be totally overwhelming. So I like starting with this stream order and mapping activity because it basically gets students, number one, to think about streams as these dendritic networks that are connected, and number two, to think about how the physical habitat and the influence of the terrestrial habitat changes as you move through the stream network, right? So even though that first day we're not talking about coarse particulate organic matter, we're not talking about paraphyton, we're not talking about all these terms that they've never heard before, they're looking at the images and they're seeing, oh yeah, I see a dense canopy in these headwaters. There's a lot of leaves on the ground there. And, and these things are, are visually apparent to them. And the changes across that continuum become apparent. And we discuss, you know, after we do the group activity, we discuss, you know, how similar did the different groups um, place the photographs along their sixth order stream network what were some of the similarities, what were any discrepancies, um, and then I'll give them a little information about where the photos are actually from, just so they have you know, a sense of where the images came from and, and how close they were to being right. And then the next week, when we actually do launch into River Continuum concept and we do get into the jargon, they've already got the visuals established in their minds as to how the look of the stream changes. And I think once those visuals are locked in their minds, then it's a lot easier to just kind of glue the jargon onto the visuals that they already have. And so it sounds like in general, this activity has been something that you've done with this kind of optional upper level um, stream ecology specific class. And I don't know if you in your current position are teaching other types of classes, but do you feel like you've taken lessons from teaching this stream ecology class and applied it either to outreach activities and how you approach doing outreach about streams or um, teaching other types of classes or how people could do similar activities in like an intro ecology class or something like that? I mean, I I haven't had to teach any of the large classes here yet, um, so I've been a bit buffered from that. I have used a similar activity in doing outreach and teaching at local high schools. So I think the, the level that I pitched this initial activity at is, is a good level for basically from you know, high school to grad school, as long as you're not that familiar with, with stream ecology. So it, it works pretty broadly. Thinking about how you could do it in a much larger classroom of more than 40 or 50 students, or if you don't have a lot of whiteboard space, that's where I think you know, I'd, I'd have to get a little bit more technologically creative. I could see a situation where you could still do this in a large lecture hall, but you would have to, you know, ask the students maybe to pair up with the student next to them and work on a laptop or a computer screen. And you could have them, you know, draw in Adobe or draw in whatever, you know, kind of uh, program you wanted to use. Draw that same sixth order network, have 10 JPEG images that you have them arrange. And then rather than everybody being able to see what everybody else's work um, is, as you can see on whiteboards, maybe you could project a few of the, the pairs of students' images up onto the main projector in the screen room. So I, I haven't really thought about that until until today. 
Um, but I think I think there's there's ways you could adapt it for for a larger classroom and, and still make it work. Um, some of the other activities I do later in the semester that get more complex, um, I think, are fairly limited to a, a smaller classroom, you know, on the scale of 20 to 50 students. Yeah, it does sound, though, like that. I like that idea of introducing active learning on that first day, because I know I've TA'd and taught in some active learning classrooms where students, understandably, they're like, whoa, what are we doing now? What is this? And so making it a clear expectation from the outset seems like a really good general takeaway, too, from this particular activity that seems to have worked well from what you described. Yeah, and you know, the students, a lot of the students are at kind of at the junior level. And so they've, they've had, you know, they've had large introductory courses and then they've made it into like maybe our basic ecology courses, 300 level courses where they're, they're doing a bit more free thinking and a bit less busy work and homework, but they, they usually haven't gotten to the type of classwork where they have a lot more freedom and there's a lot more um, hypothesis building and conceptualization and visualization. And so I think it's important for me to kind of establish that on day one. And, and it's in the syllabus, it's in my, you know, my grading rubrics. Like I, I tell them from day one, this is not the kind of course we're going to do homework every week. You're going to fill out these assignments. You're going to take quizzes. You know, this is the kind of course where, where you're going to be challenged to think conceptually, to think a little bit broader and to think about questions that don't have a single answer or even a single set of answers. That's really important for me that they, they understand that from day one. So, you know, even as far as the grading goes, like a significant portion of the grade comes from active participation in the class. You know, they don't have to have the right answers when, you know, when they draw on the board. They don't have to draw well on the board. They see my horrible drawing on the board all the time. But to me, that's a big part of this class is put them out into the real world, even though we can't. We don't have a lab component to go into the real world, right? So we're putting them out into the stream, asking them to think about what they're seeing in that stream, what they're seeing in that floodplain image, what kind of processes might be happening here, what's the history of that site, you know, what kind of floods and droughts have come through here, and how does all of that affect the ecology of the stream ecosystem. Like finding the students really rise to the challenge, even if they're a little intimidated at first by not having a, you know, a study sheet that has the right answers and short answers. And it sounds like it's great that you've had the opportunity to teach this um, class multiple times too. And you're obviously ex very experienced in teaching um, in stream ecology. And so I was wondering if you could share with folks listening to the podcast, if you have any advice for people, whether they're grad students or postdocs or professors who are starting out, um, who might be teaching in the aquatic sciences for the first time, anything that's like maybe particular to aquatic sciences or just teaching in general? You know, especially for, for teaching stream ecology, one of the big points that I make over and over again in class is how dynamic streams are and how streams are three-dimensionally dynamic dynamic and four-dimensionally dynamic because there's added flow component change through time. But I think that lends it itself really well to visuals, to both photographs and videos. The amount of uh, flash flooding videos you can find online on YouTube is pretty impressive. So even when you can't take the students out to the field, you can show them visually what's happening in these stream ecosystems. You can show them some of the processes that are happening through the use of media. And so I think that that is really key for me to, to engage students in the classroom. And then additionally, of course, having these, these activities where students can and kind of build their own hypotheses about uh, a given ecological process, about a given stream ecosystem that they're seeing in an image or in a flow regime chart, um, and give them some some flexibility and 
space for creativity um, in interpreting those those visualizations. Um, and then as far as the active learning, don't be afraid for those to fail the first time around either. <laughs> so the, the activity I described was one I just got really lucky that it popped into my head probably a week before the first time I thought I taught this class and it worked great the first time and it's worked great every time since. Um, other activities later in the semester, some of the times they work the first time and other times they don't at all. The first year I taught it, I tried a, a biomonitoring exercise where they broke into groups. Each had a certain stream and had a certain community uh, of insects in that stream and they had all the biomonitoring protocol they needed to, to figure out whether the stream would score high as far as an index of biological integrity and so i thought oh it'd be great if i could somehow incorporate you know stochasticity into this and the fact that some streams are affected by you know mining spills and other streams aren't and so i came up with this really elaborate way of using dice and rolling dice and if you get certain combinations of numbers by rolling the dice then you've got either a flood or an acid mine drain it and it it was <laughs> i think out of the seven groups like Two, one or two of them actually ended up getting disturbances with the rolls of dice that I came up with. And the other five like had no problem. Their stream never experienced any disturbance. So it totally failed as a, as a teaching technique. And so then I was able to, to realize, okay, next year I won't quite be able to incorporate that chance because the chance can work against you while you're doing these activities. Yeah, it's good. I like that advice so of trying things. And sometimes they're just going to fail and you'll learn and you'll move on. Make it exactly. And I don't ever um, shy away from telling the students that either. I say, you know, we're going to try something new. I've got this idea and, and hopefully it'll work out. And, and then at the end, if it doesn't work out, then you say, well, you know, I won't do that again next year. I'll try something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a very it's a very meta. The science of teaching science teaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your um, stream ecology teaching expertise with us today, Michael. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Great. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast. For more info. For more info. For more info, please visit us online. At the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune Tune in in next time. time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.